Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to another session of the Potter's Roundtable brought to you by Washington Street Studios. Um, The topic today is, is, is... Clay properties and drying. We're going to continue the discussion that we had last time where we were talking about what is clay. And now we're going to talk about some properties of clay that relate to how it, how it dries. So clay is made up, as we, as we talked about last time, clay is made up of tiny particles called platelets. And they're shaped like little flat disks. And they're really tiny, as I mentioned. They're about the, typically, they're about the size of your red blood cells. Um, they're arranged in stacks like little decks of cards. And the decks, these little decks of cards that I'll call them, are oriented fairly randomly in a, in a mass of clay. This is a model that I showed last time that I made from beer coasters. Um, by the way, you know how you get it. You go, when you go to a bar, you get one coaster per beer. So this represents a lot of trips to my local, my local bar. Dedication, of course. Um, so anyway, what this shows is that the individual, the individual particles of clay are really composed of stacks of these particles. And then they're arranged in these little decks of cards, arranged fairly randomly um, in, the, in, in any typical mass of clay. Wet clay, the kind of clay that we would, we would use for making pottery, contains water between the individual layers in the decks of cards and also in all the spaces and gaps and voids between the decks of cards. When water dries, basically what happens is the water evaporates from the outside surface of a piece of clay and then more water is drawn to the surface by the capillary action of the water. So the water is continually moving to the surface um, and then evaporating from the surface. The drying of clay, however, actually occurs in two stages. This is important. This will have important implications for how we handle our clay, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But during the first stage of drying, water is moving to the surface and the water and water is the water that remains behind in, internally in the lump of clay is actually decreasing. The amount of water remaining is, is becoming less and less. And so when that happens is the clay particles actually get pulled closer to closer together. As the water leaves, the surface tension of the water inside the mass of clay pulls the clay particles closer together. So the water, it might start out looking something like this. These are sort of diagrammatically representing these little books of car- books, decks of cards that I have. And they're more or less randomly arranged. In some cases, they, they'd actually be touching one another. In other cases, they'd be completely surrounded. This represents the water, the dotted area in here. So this is just a small portion of a lump of clay showing randomly oriented particles and the water in the spaces between them. I, I haven't shown the water actually that, that exists, exists within the, the, the layers here. So as the, anyway, what happens is as the water evaporates from the surface, these particles get closer and closer together as the water is reduced. And finally, they collide. They get to the point where they've moved close enough together and they really can't move anymore. They're touching all the surrounding particles. There's still water between them in the space between them, but the particles are no longer free to move. They're no longer free to collapse and, and, and get closer together. When it gets to this point, this is considered the end of the first stage of drying. Now, this, there's still water in the spaces between them, but, 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 no, but movement of the particles, really much movement isn't really possible any longer. During the second stage, drying continues. Water continues to move to the surface of the pot um, by, by capillary action, surface of the piece. 
and the water inside continues to be reduced until finally the piece is, is completely dry and it reaches the state that we call bone dry. It feels completely dry to the touch. Well, why, and, and, and at this point, basically, during the whole second stage, there really isn't much more movement of the clay particles. So why is this important, the fact that it occurs in two stages? The really, what, what, why this is important is because it gives us a guide as far as the best way to dry our work. The goal of proper drying really is, should be that all of the parts of whatever we're making out of clay should dry at the same rate. We want uniform drying. We don't want some part of a piece to dry ahead of another part of the piece. We, don't, we want to avoid what's called differential drying, which means that one part is drying faster than another. And the, part, the problem is, if one part is drying faster than another, it's also shrinking faster than another. So with differential drying, we end up with, this is the, the, the classic cause of drying cracks, all kinds of cracks that are related to the drying process. It also can lead to warping of the clay during the drying process. And it can lead to also what are called residual stresses, which are forces that are trapped inside the clay that sort of like a compressed spring that really only can show up later during the firing. And typically they'll show up during the glaze firing. But it was like a, a compressed spring or a stretched spring within the clay that it wanted to move, but it was locked in place. And then later on when the clay is high fired, the clay becomes a little softer and it's free to move. And then cracks can often happen then, delay, essentially like delayed cracking. So during the first stage, with these two stages, we, we need to control the drying very carefully. We need to make sure that whatever we're making, whatever we've produced, all the parts are drying at the same rate. If one, as I mentioned, if one part starts drying and shrinking faster than another part, then what typically what happens is you get cracking between those two parts. One part is moving essentially and the other part in shrinking, and the other part isn't. So you get cracks develop, or at the very least you get warping, you get stresses build up, and one part sort of pulls the other part. If the clay is still softer, it can pull it, and you get warping. This is especially important with attachments such as handles or thin areas, so, because anything, an attachment that's sticking out from the surface of a piece of clay, such as especially a, a loop handle on a mug, the, it's, it's going to dry a lot faster than a solid lump of clay. So that we have to be especially careful with pieces that have thin and thick areas or that have attachments that stick out into the air. Because those thin areas are going to dry faster and shrink faster. And the attachments, because they're sticking out into the air, are going to dry faster and shrink faster. So what we have to do is we have to gradually lower the humidity of the whole piece. And typically that can be done by covering it and uncovering. You can cover up a piece, make a tent over it, let all the pieces equalize in terms of the moisture content, and then uncover it for a short period of time, let the humidity drop a little bit, some of the moisture evaporate, and then cover it back up again and let all the parts equalize. When you uncover it the first time, certain parts are going to dry faster than others. The, the rims of bowls, the edges, attachments, and so forth. But as long as you don't let it go, go too far, you cover it back up again, it'll have a chance to re-equalize. And so the trick is to cover it, uncover it, cover it, uncover it, and gradually bring down all of the, all the levels of moisture without letting any parts get too far ahead or much drier than any other parts. The point is, you don't, during the first stage of drying, you don't just want to leave the pots uncovered to dry. Because then, then, then you'll really see this exaggerated effect of thin parts drying faster than thick parts. During the second stage, water is, is, is leaving the clay, but there's still no shrinkage. 
So in this case, the wart can be left uncovered. When, when, the, when the clay reaches the second stage of drying, there is really little or no movement of the clay particles that's going to happen. So we're not, going to, we're not worried about differences in shrinkage occurring, and we're not worried about warping. So at that point, you can just leave the pots uncovered to dry. So the point is, how do you tell when, the first, when you've reached the end of the first stage? And there are a couple of so easy signs. When the clay becomes really firm to the touch, when it, when it gets to the point where you can't easily indent it with your fingernail, and it no longer feels plastic, and one of the tricks I use is I thump it with my finger. I'll take a piece of clay and thump it like this. And if I can thump it and it sounds solid and I don't make any marks in the clay, then you can be pretty sure that you're at this stage. At this stage, basically, the clay, does, the clay doesn't feel plastic anymore. It's still, it's still, if you pushed it and you could break it and it's still soft, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel as plastic. And that, it's not plastic because the particles aren't moving. So at that point, you can leave the pot just uncovered and just let it dry. There are complications to this story, however. Nothing is simple in pottery, as you may have, you may have realized by now. Um, clay particles are not spherical, and they're not cube-shaped. They're not symmetrical. They're flat and platy, as we already mentioned. So the problem is, when you apply pressure to wet clay, it changes the orientation of the clay particles. If you just had little balls or spheres and you pushed on the clay, you'd move them necessarily, but you wouldn't necessarily cause them to tilt or rotate. But the fact that they're platelets, when you push on them, you change the act, you actually cause them to tilt or rotate or move within the clay. So let me, I've got, a, I've got a, several diagrams I'm gonna put on the board that illustrate this. So when we, when we apply pressure to wet clay, the pressure actually changes the orientation of the particles. And this can produce what's called, it, it tends to align them actually, and it tends to produce what's called preferred orientation. Preferred orientation doesn't mean that the particles want to be that way. It's just the terminology that means that they tend to be oriented in a, in a certain direction. There are three main kinds of forces that we can talk about that we apply to clay, compression, tension, and shear. And all of these tend to, all of these forces tend to orient the clay particles. And this is an example. This is an example of what it looks like with compression. So I have a cube or a block of clay here. And I'm, what I'm showing here by these little lines this is sort of diagrammatic for the little clay particles. Each one of these little lines represents a clay, one of these little clay decks of cards. So I'm showing the fact that in a, in a typical block of clay, they're, they're more or less randomly arranged. And the two arrows at the top, the arrows at the top and the bottom on the block indicate the fact that I'm gonna compress this block from both directions. I'm gonna squash it, basically. Well, when I do that, when I squash it, well, first of all, it becomes thinner, and it be, the block becomes thinner, it becomes slightly larger because I've squashed it out. I'm still applying the force, but now all the particles have been aligned, as shown in this diagram. They're all basically horizontal, lying in the plane of the of the the piece of clay, and they're perpendicular to the direction of the pressure. So I've changed the orient by by compressing the clay. I've changed the orientation from random to to a preferred orientation, highly oriented in the basically in the same direction as the layer of clay. So this shows clay, a, a, a chunk of clay or a piece of clay in tension. This could be, um, this could be a, a, a piece of a slab of clay or a bar of clay. And the arrows indicate the direction of the force that I'm applying to this strip of clay. I'm pulling, I'm gonna stretch it. It starts off with the clay particles being more or less, again, randomly oriented. And I'm not trying to show whether they're in contact or anything. I'm just sort of indicating the fact that they're, they're randomly arranged. 
When I stretch the clay, when I pull it in tension, the clay becomes thinner in the middle where the clay is, is being stretched. And when it does, the particles once again become aligned. In this case, they become aligned parallel to the direction of pulling. So they haven't changed much in the very ends of the piece where I've grabbed the clay, but in the center where the clay is getting thinner because it's being stretched, the same way like when you stretch a rubber band, you notice how the rubber band gets thinner. Well, in this case, the clay would get thinner and the, the particles become oriented. And in this case, they become, they're still oriented in the plane of the piece, but they're oriented parallel to the direction of, of the forces applied, that the tension is applied. Okay, and the third, the third kind of force that we can apply to anything, but in this case to clay, is called shear. Basically, this is, if I have this, if, I, if I'm showing here a block of clay, again, with the clay particles more or less randomly arranged, and in this case, I'm not pushing directly opposite each other. I'm pushing on, on, on let's say, on the top on one side, and I'm pushing in the opposite direction on the bottom. And this tends, this, is, this produces a, mo a motion called shearing, where the particle is slid sideways. It isn't, it isn't strictly compressed between the two forces. So that if I start off where I'm showing the particles randomly arranged, after I've sheared the particle, the, the, what I've shown here in the diagram is a square or block of clay. It would be slanted sideways, be pushed sideways by the forces. And again, in this case, the particles become aligned parallel to the direction of the shear. So the, and, and this, is, this happens a lot working with clay, where you get a sliding motion the particles tend to become aligned in the plane of the, of the, the sliding. So when we, what this means, and all of these forces, we're, the, comp the, the compression, the tension, and the shear, we're applying all those three different types of forces at different times when we're working with clay. So when, we, when we're wedging clay, we're applying compression, we're, doing some, we're definitely doing some shearing because we're sort of smearing the clay. When we roll out a coil, we're doing compression. If we roll out a slab, we're doing some compression and we're doing some shear, we're, we're orienting the clay particles. And an example of that is, now what I've shown here in these diagrams, I've, I've shown diagrammatic the little particles. The problem is that they're so small, we can't normally see them. So we know it's happening, but we can't see them. We do see the effects, but occasionally you can actually see them. And this is an example. This is a, a piece of a log of clay that was produced by a pug mill. And so what I did was when, and, and if you think about it, a pug mill has this auger inside that is, that is mixing the clay and then pushing the clay out of the, the dye or the orifice at the end of the pug mill. So you would think that that probably will produce some kind of orientation of the clay particles, but normally you wouldn't be able to see it. In this case, we were using a fairly coarse grained clay and I took a log, a piece of the, from the pug mill, let it dry, and then I broke it so that I produced a rough surface, and then I bisque fired it just to make it more permanent. And so, I don't know whether you can see this, but you can see there's a swirl pattern in the, in the end. This is looking at the end as produced from the, the pug mill. So if you look at this carefully, and I know it's kind of hard to see maybe in the video, you can actually see the swirl pattern, which is, which is actually showing the alignment of the clay particles. Normally, we wouldn't see that. But because this was a very coarse grained clay um, and it did a lot of orientation, um, you, it, it makes it visible. But this is happening anytime we touch clay. If we just take a block of clay and we just push our finger into it, underneath our finger in the clay, we've changed the orientation of the clay particles. If you would like more information about our membership studio, classes, events, and multimedia productions at Washington Street Studios, visit our website, 
at www.hfclay.com. Why does this matter? That question comes up a lot with a lot of things we'll be talking about. It's like, yeah, we'll describe something and say, so what? Well, the so what is that when clay dries, it shrinks. We've already talked about that. And also when it's fired, it shrinks. But the problem is, or the complication arises from the fact that it doesn't shrink the same in all directions. This, this is just a little quick sketch of an individual a clay particle, and it's showing the, the layers. This is like one of the decks of cards. It's showing the layers within it. Well, the point is that when this clay particle dries and also when it shrinks, it tends to shrink more perpendicular to the layers than sideways. So the layers don't actually get as get reduced in size as much as the space between them. So that what would happen is this stack would ascend. It might, it might get a little smaller this way, but not much change. It's going to shrink in height, though. So the problem is that if the clay particles in a, in a piece of clay are highly oriented, that piece of clay is going to shrink more in one direction than another when it dries. And this, then what can happen is this can lead to warping or cracking. And let me show you another example of that. So this is an example of how, how warping can occur as a result of differences in orientation. So what I've shown here, first of all, is basically a block or a, small, uh, a piece of clay um, that's resting on a surface. And I'm going to push down on the surface just from the top. Let's say, let's say this is a piece of clay and I'm applying a rolling pin to it. So I start off with the particles randomly arranged, and I'm just going to, let's say, run the rolling pin over the top of the clay a couple of times. So on the right side of the diagram, I'm showing the piece after, after I've done this, this roll, a little bit of rolling on the surface. And now the clay has gotten a little thinner, and it's gotten a little larger. It's expanded sideways. And as a result, the, the, the clay particles near the top of the layer of clay have gotten somewhat oriented by the pressure of the rolling pin. But the clay at the bottom has not been, has not had the same pressure applied to it. The pressure was more spread out because it was coming through the layer of clay. So the clay particles on the bottom are not as highly oriented as the ones on the top. Now, if I let this piece of clay dry, what happens is the clay particles on the top, the top part of the layer, the clay particles are not going to shrink that much sideways because they're oriented. Whereas the clay particles on the bottom, are still free to shrink sideways more than the top. Well, if the bottom of the bar shrinks sideways more than the top, what happens is the bar gets shorter on the bottom, which means the bar warps. So after drying, this bar would look like this. It would be arched up. The bottom, would have, the bottom side would have contracted more than the top, causing the bar to bend when it dries. And this, so this is, a, this is a, a, a typical orientation. This happens a lot when it, with slabs and, piece and, uh, and sheets of clay that are rolled out where they're not compressed equally on both sides of the slab. If you'd like to see a video version of this presentation, just head out to YouTube and search for Washington Street Studios. So this, all of this is the reason why this, this talking about how orientation that occurs can contribute to some of these issues. This is the reason why, for example, scoring and slipping is really important. Now, here's a diagram, basically, of, of, of a mug with an added handle. 
And what I've shown here is, and I've exaggerated the walls and the thickness of everything so that we can, I can indicate the direction of the clay platelets. So if this, if this mug had been thrown on a wheel, for example, then the particles by, with the sideways pressure of the fingers on the inside and the outside of the wall, the particles were oriented up and down in the wall. They'd be oriented parallel to the surface of the wall. We would have had a combination of compression and shear on the walls, which would tend to orient them in this direction. And then if the, if the potter had been, had been uh, careful with what they were doing and also compressed the bottom, then the particles would be lying flat on the bottom of the mug and they'd sort of curve around the corners at the bottom. And then I'm assuming the handle, let's say the handle was either a coil that was rolled out or it was a pulled handle. Well, by pulling, let's say when we pull a handle, we'd have a combination of tension and compression and shear. And so all the particles would tend to be aligned would be aligned parallel to the length of this, of this coil that I'm making. And they'd also might be twisted similar to the way they were shown, I showed in this core from the, 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 uh, the pug mill. The problem is that now when I go, we don't, we don't think about this a lot, but now when I'm joining this handle to this mug, right where the joint is occurring, I've got clay particles oriented in exactly opposite directions. So, which means that in one, one side of the joint, the clay wants to shrink in one direction, and on the other side of the joint, the clay is shrinking in a completely different direction. This is one of the reasons why joints tend to fail, because the shrinkage is not uniform across the joint. So this is, one reason, this is another reason why, why scoring and slipping is really important, because when I score and slip, I roughen the surface, and I add another, a little layer, and I add essentially a transition layer at the point where the two, the two pieces of clay come together, which is neither orientation. And it provides a sort of a, re a release of the, of the stresses there so that it, it, it sort of counteracts a little bit the differences in orientation by providing this additional layer. That's what the scoring and the slipping layer provides, a transition layer between the two. Okay, so this is the reason why, why scoring and slipping is important. It's also the reason why it's very important when you're rolling out clay slabs to roll both sides of the slab about the same amount and also roll them in different directions. Because the goal is we want to produce uniform orientation of the clay particles within the slab. We don't want one side of the slab to have the clay particles more highly oriented than on the other slide. It also, it also is another reason why you generally don't want to use the very edges of slabs when you roll out a slab. Because the orientation, especially if, this, if you're hand rolling and you're not using a slab roller, you tend to put more pressure on the edges of the slab and the particles can be more highly oriented in the thinner edges than they are in the center of the slab. And the problem would arise would be when you were cutting pieces from the slab and then joining them, again, you'd be joining pieces together that had different amounts of orientation in them. And so they, the, the pieces would want to shrink different amounts during the drying process, which can create potential you know, cracking problems. It also, it's a, this, these are just different examples. Another, another lesson that this points out is that you shouldn't make tiles by taking a block of clay that you receive from a clay supplier and just slice them to produce tiles. And let me put a little sketch up on the board that will illustrate that. Okay, this represents a block of clay that you might receive from a commercial supplier. And when, you, when you're buying clay, typically it's extruded by very large extruders. And so these blocks are actually represent shortcut sections of a much longer extrusion of clay. So this block represents, for instance, a 25 pound block of clay. And this arrow here is indicating the extrusion direction. It's extruded lengthwise. Well, the problem is that during the extrusion process, 
the particles around the outside of this block of clay, which would be the square end of the clay, are oriented parallel to the surface. What I've shown here on the sides of the block, it's as if you're looking down on the, the clay part, on the little platelets, the little decks of cards, because they are. They're essentially lying parallel to the surface. And when you look at the end of the block of clay, again, you see this sort of diagrammatic representation in terms of the orientation. So the clay particles are a lot more highly oriented on the outside of this, this log of clay than they are in the center. So if you were to cut a slice from this block of clay and use that without any further working as a tile, you'd get huge differences in the shrinkage and very likely the tiles would crack because I've got a, this big difference in orientation. If this is, let's say, an eight inch block across, I'd get big differences in, in orientation and shrinkage across that face, okay? So one of the other problems, one of the complications of this also is the fact that a lot of these cracks that are produced or, or caused by, by these differences in orientation of the drawing don't actually show up during the drying. They, they typically show up later on, especially during the high fire. They may not even show up in the bisque. The stresses are there that want to cause them, but they don't show up until later. And this is what happens a lot of time with S-cracks. S-cracks are caused by a difference in shrinkage. They're um, cracks that you, you sometimes you'll see just above the foot ring, when a foot ring is trimmed on a bowl or a piece, and just above the foot ring where the, where the clay kind of dips in above the foot ring, you can see cracks. Again, that's a drying crack, but a lot of times they typically don't show up in the final firing. So a lot of times it makes diagnosing the problem especially difficult because you, you, you know, they don't happen until the very end of the process. The amazing thing about all of this and all, as, and all the clay properties that we like, like the plasticity and the fact that it's self-lubricating when it gets wet, as well as these orientation effects, are all the result of the shape of these tiny little particles. These particles, you know, they're microscopic. We can't even see them with naked eye. But all these things we're talking about happen because the clay, because the clay particles have that shape. Well, there are two major lessons that we can learn from this. The first is, be aware of the fact that when we work with clay, we are orienting the clay particles. The minute we touch the clay, we're orienting the clay particles. And, the, and the, this orienting effect or the preferred orientation can have negative effects. The second thing is that clay should be dried extremely slowly and uniformly. There's an old saying in pottery that there are a lot of things you can mess up in pottery by going too fast. There's nothing you can mess up by, drying too, by going too slowly. So in this case, during the first stage of drying, we want to dry the clay extremely slowly to avoid cracking and warping. And the, the complication is that preferred orientation only amplifies the effects of non-uniform drying. Okay, well, thank you very much for, for visiting us today. I hope, you, I hope that this discussion has been useful. And if you'd like to support our educational efforts, you can go to patreon.com and search for the Potter's Roundtable, and also check our website at www.hfclay.com. The next topic in the series will be the next one in sort of the logical sequence of processing. We'll be talking about bisque firing and how the properties of clay appear or occur as a result of bisque firing. Thank you very much. The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, Give us a five-star review and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. 
Thank you. And we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable.